Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast's mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and in this series, we'll be traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. Some of you might remember the mini-series on Mary I that I hosted. She was the topic of my thesis and has a very special place in my heart. But this time, we are introducing you to even more queens and to queens, as I say, from around the world. Today, we are joined by, I'm going to call them two greats of the field, by Dr. Ellie Whitaker and Amy Saunders. They're going to introduce us to queenship more generally and to how queenship is reflected in historical narratives. Ellie is a reader in Renaissance history at the University of Winchester and is the founder of the Royal Studies Network, as well as the Kings and Queens Conference series. And she is an international authority on queenship, regardless of what she will humbly tell you. Amy is a PhD at the, is, sorry, undertaking a PhD at the University of Winchester and is researching representations of the Stuart monarchy and heritage, especially the first few Stuart queens consort. So with that, we'll jump right in. So some of our listeners might be familiar with both of your works from publications, from social media, from the Royal Studies Network or Royal Studies Journal. But could you share a little bit about each of you? Um, why don't we start with Ellie? So thank you so much, Joe, for asking me to be part of this episode. So yes, I uh, work on queens and queenship. So it's long been an obsession of mine. And I look at queenship from a number of angles. So I've done a lot of work on regnant queens, particularly the regnant queens of Navarre. But more recently, I've been looking at queenship in a much kind of broader spectrum. And my most recent work has been uh, both a kind of global view of queenship and also uh, more particularly a biography of one particular queen who I believe needs a lot more time and attention, which is Joan of Navarre, um, the wife of Henry IV of England. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ellie. Uh, if anyone wants to hear more about Ellie's research into Joan, she has a monograph that is recently out um, all about Joan of Navarre and that kind of tangled history of her status as Duchess, Queen, wife, mother, um, all of the, the good stuff of queenship. Amy, how about you? Hi Joe, um, thank you very much for having us. Um, so as Johanna said, I'm currently um, nearing completion on my PhD in History and Heritage at Winchester, um, where the wonderful Ellie um, and Dr Simon Sandor are my supervisors. Um, so my research is exploring the reconstructions of 17th century monarchs and queen consorts in heritage sites, um, with a particular focus on England and Scotland. So whilst I'm looking at a whole variety of themes, um, some of the things I look at um, include othering, national identity, religion, conflict, gender, sexuality and parenthood, so just a short list. Um, and I'm particularly interested in Anna of Denmark, Henrietta Maria and Catherine of Braganza, and how their confessional identities and fertility has affected their reconstructions in modern heritage sites, 
Um, so this project was inspired um, by my experience in the heritage sector, but also um, through my undergraduate dissertation that I completed with Ellie a long time ago, um, which looked at early modern gender and sexuality in modern pop culture. Um, so yeah, it's very nice to be here. Thank you, Joe. I am so pleased that you both said yes. Um, I always love getting to talk to fellow queenship lovers about queenship. And so I know you've both kind of touched on this, but what really got you interested in queenship in the first place? Why not the royal studies in gender and in general? What is the appeal of queenship? Ellie, why don't we start with you again? Well, I must admit that my journey started a long time ago when I was a kid and became fascinated with Cleopatra. And she led me on a kind of merry dance that got me interested in history and the broader sense. But that love of queens and royal women really stuck with me. And later on, I became infected by Eleanor of Aquitaine and Blanche of Castile, and they led me into the Middle Ages. And it's kind of gone on from there. And it was really during my master's when I was working on the Queens of Jerusalem and female succession in the 12th century. I I was really interested in how does a woman come to a throne in a kind of patriarchal political framework? How does that happen? And so I was really obsessed with the um, the Queens of the Crusader Kingdom. And it kind of came to me when I was doing my master's, like, you know, why not turn something that I love, which is looking at queens and royal women into, into my area of research? And then ever since then, I've kind of never looked back. But I think Cleopatra, in a way, and Eleanor of Aquitaine also inspired another kind of aspect of queens that I'm really interested in, which is their long-term legacy and reputation and how they've been remembered over time. And I know that, Joe, that's something that you're really interested in as well, and Amy as well, in terms of how your Stuart queens are represented in kind of modern heritage sites. And I think that these women are interested in their own time and their own lives, but also the kind of afterlives that they have as well. I think that's such a, an enduring part of this is understanding even today in a world that is often not built for women how do women get to these positions of power and looking at kind of how that happens and how they create that role around themselves and then how do we whether it's a year 10 years a thousand years how do we judge them for that which is fascinating and Amy, I know you're also very interested in the idea of kind of memory and interpretation um, and representation. So what got you interested in queenship? Uh, yeah, so I became interested in history, like Ellie, at a very young age. So we used to run around all sorts of museums and castles and archaeological sites. And that was kind of our summer holidays every year. Um, and then when I'd started my undergraduate, all I'd been exposed to um, kind of in school, academically, up until that point, um, had been ancient Greece and Rome, or really very modern history. And I didn't really know, other than kind of um, kids' historical fiction and the occasional Time Team episode, I didn't really know anything about the early modern period. Um, and Ellie, actually, um, and some of her colleagues, including Simon, um, ran um, an introduction to the period when we were in our first year. Um, and suddenly I was like, look at all this stuff, all of these things, all of these um, themes that I'm already really interested in, um, in art, in architecture, in performance, um, that actually I didn't, I hadn't thought of to look in that time period because I just didn't know it was there. No one had ever said, hey, look at this. Um, so very much I can happily blame Ellie and Simon um, for introducing me to the field um, and to queenship. Um, and queenship in the 17th century particularly grabbed me because, as I said, those things that I had experienced for the early modern period 
had very much been, and I know um, this resonates with you, Joe. I had particularly um, focused on certain Tudor women, um, and Ellie was suddenly like, look at this queen, and look at this woman, and all of these amazing 17th century women that I just never heard of. Um, and you'd go into Ellie's office and she'd be like, I have a book on this. Um, so there would always be someone I hadn't heard of that I thought was equally fascinating. Um, and I really wanted to know why they hadn't received that attention that, you know, certain other figures that we know lots about um, had done. Um, so, yeah, Ellie, you can fully create, take credit. It was your fault. I say I completely understand. I think all of us here completely understand this idea that some some people, some queens get a lot more attention than others. Um, I was, my my day job is working as a teacher and I have just come back from a house quiz. And there was an entire category, not written by me, I would like to add, not written by me on Mary the First. And all of the students just looked confused of who on earth is this woman and how am I supposed to know what religion she is and I was just sitting in the back agonizing when one of them goes well she's protestant oh oh goodness okay okay uh we need to update the GCSE here (laughs) so I completely sympathize with some people get more attention and why so thank you both for sharing a little bit about how you got into queenship. Now, obviously, we've been talking a lot about queenship, but we haven't actually given it uh, a definition or explanation yet. So I was wondering, Ellie, if you could explain to our listeners what we mean when we talk about queenship. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, queenship is kind of a, a kind of modern term, and it's really grown out of the kind of academic discipline. And that's come from two places. One, there's been a long-term fascination with the lives of queens. I mean, you know, royal women have been written about, you know, across the ages, their lives, you know, from Cleopatra to you know, medieval queens to, you know, again, the ubiquitous Elizabeth I, so we keep kind of dancing around and not talking about, et cetera. So their lives have always generated a great deal of interest, biography biographers, collective biographers, et cetera, have written about them. But in the modern era, we see the kind of rise of, of women in gender's history kind of taking a new lens on these women and starting to think about the practice of queenship, what it is to exercise the office of queen, what it is that these women did and how they kind of had agency, authority, power, um, and the different ways in which they exercise that through patronage, through political activity, through diplomacy, et cetera. So really, you know, what queenship is doing is 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 building on that interest in the lives of queens, not not discounting the lives of queens. That's still important, but weaving into it the kind of practice of queenship, the exercise of the office, how these royal women engaged with power, how they formed the female half of monarchy, and how vital that was to the practice of monarchy more generally. And then I guess building off of that. Obviously, studying queenship is so important for these ideas of how gender is performed or played out on this this bigger scale. And so why is it that we've developed this queenship field? That's a big question. Why have we developed this queenship field rather than, you know, just expanding how we talk about monarchy in general? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, queenship kind of it, it sits at the nexus of a whole bunch of different fields. So obviously, biography is part of that. Women and gender history is part of that. Royal studies is part of that. It's arguably a part of kind of royal studies connected with court studies as well. And obviously, it draws on a wide kind of different disciplines that come into it. You see people working on queenship who are art historians, who are literature specialists, etc., each bringing their own kind of lens into that. So it's a very kind of rich Inter interdisciplinary kind of field of its own, but it sits within and connects with kind of royal studies. So again, it is really important to understanding monarchy, but I think queenship has developed as a field because it was really felt that the old school political histories and kind of great man history that really focused on this idea of kind of one person reigning and didn't really understand that monarchy is a collective enterprise, that there are men and women involved in that enterprise, particularly, obviously, the king and queen. But there are others, siblings, um, favorites, mistresses, etc., who are also kind of co-opted into rule. And I think today we're taking a much more um, nuanced understanding, a much more wide ranging understanding understanding of what monarchy is rather than this kind of great man idea of kind of one man or one individual whose name is on the reign, so to speak. We're looking at it in a whole new way. And queenship studies has been instrumental in that kind of um, reconfiguring of how we understand monarchy. Well, obviously, we've had such a, a really good way, especially in, in Britain and in Commonwealth countries that still have the British monarchy as head of state. Um, and I guess non-Commonwealth as well now, um, that we've had you know, for 70 years, had a queen at the helm. And so kind of had that official momentum maybe to say, this is why we're relevant. It's not just for the ivory towers, um, which is, is always nice, though I'm sure you would have appreciated a break. <laughs> with all of the queenship stuff. <laughs> well, no, it is incredibly irrelevant to today. And of course, you know, not just you know, the late Elizabeth II, but again, there are several kind of female sovereigns who are heads of European states and also female politicians. So thinking about women and power is really incredibly relevant today. Again, not just because of female monarchs, but also because of how many female presidents we're seeing, female prime ministers that we're seeing. And this, it is all about kind of the the particular way in which women exercise power and authority. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible to watch, I think, and very exciting to see that the world is, in fact, 50% female. <laughs> and so kind of building on that, we have this kind of academic grounding now in, you know, what is queenship? Why do we study it? But there's sometimes this difference between what we as scholars and academics know and what gets out there as kind of the, the popular story and kind of what we term the historical narrative. And so how traditionally, I know we've touched a little bit on this, but how traditionally has the historical narrative reflected and represented queenship? Um, do you want to start with Ellie? And we can see if Amy has anything to add. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, again, I, I think one thing that that is really interesting about queens and queenship is that I think women, like you said, are fifty percent 
of the population and they are kind of half of monarchy and yet they haven't received half of the attention that the traditional historic historical narrative has tended to underplay um, the contribution and the involvement of women in the exercise of power. And again, that's something that queenship studies is really aiming to correct. And Teresa Ehrenfeit wrote this fantastic piece called um, Highly Visible, Often Obscured. And she talked about how queens are often even though they seem like they're an obvious person, that they're the most visible woman in the realm, that their visibility, their agency, their authority, their actions are not always seen in the sources, the traditional sources that we use, particularly, again, for medievalists, um, thinking about chronicles, again, written by medieval churchmen who aren't necessarily giving weight um, to women, either because they don't appreciate what it is that women are doing or because some of that um, agency is happening within a private sphere that they don't have access to, or perhaps deliberately downplaying or omitting um, what it is that women are doing. So there's all sorts of reasons. And also the um, archival sources. Again, many of the sources for queens weren't necessarily, particularly consort queens, dowager queens, weren't given the same kind of emphasis in terms of protection and preservation as sources for monarchs. Often it was seen as being extraneous to kind of the central narrative. And so those records haven't been as well kept, which has made it harder for successive generations of scholars to kind of find that material and again, see what it is that these women women were doing. So yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why the historical narrative hasn't really reflected the kind of true activity of these women. And I think it's it's so interesting looking, I think we're all privileged in the sense that we're part of the, or are attached to the postgraduate community at Winchester and the ability to see kind of what are people working on and what are kind of the staff side, what are the faculty working on? What are the students working on? And I've just been fascinated um, looking at charters where, you know, I've always thought, oh, well, you'd look at charters for who gets what land or, you know, who's paying what tax, but that you can look at the charter to say, well, the king has the exact same one. So why did the queen write one? Because obviously hers is as significant. Otherwise she would just go, yeah, ditto. <laughs> um, so this, this idea, as you say, of reading sources differently and not taking a lack of sources as confirmation of non-existence, if that makes sense. And so that's obviously something we see as well in, in heritage sites, Amy. And Obviously, both of you work on queens who are born outside of the British Isles. And I think, Amy, you're, you're, one of your big focuses, as you've, as you've shared with us, is looking into how this idea of a foreign identity plays into how queens are represented in the historical narrative and in heritage sites. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your research into those aspects of narrative and representation. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> what the listeners couldn't see me doing was just nodding along with everything Ellie was saying in the previous bit, because, yeah, 100%. Um, so the three queen consorts that I particularly work on at the moment um, come from other European countries, as Joe says. Um, so Anna of Denmark, she marries James VI, who later becomes James VI and I, um, and as her name suggests, is from Denmark. Um, and then Henrietta Maria, who marries Charles I, she's the youngest daughter 
um, of Henri IV of France and his wife, Marie de Medici. Um, and then you have Catherine of Baganza. Um, and Catherine's really interesting because she isn't born a princess, but she becomes the Portuguese princess um, when they gain independence from Spain. And then she marries Charles II um, later on. So this means that each woman comes to Scotland or to England with various degrees of understanding of the culture that they're about to arrive in and that they're going to rule over as a queen consort. Um, and this means that language and religious and cultural differences um, can cause them quite significant difficulties, especially in those early days of integrating into their new courts. And I think a lot of the kind of traditional historiography that we referenced earlier um, just sort of forgets about that um, and forgets about that really real human lived experience of how terrifying that must have been for some of these women who were, you know, as young as 15 um, when this was happening. Um, so for a monarch choosing a bride from a foreign royal or elite house, it's a really um, important way of expanding their dynastic networks and growing alliances. Um, but particularly for Henrietta Maria and Catherine, um, the previous century of the reformations and religious turmoil um, causes them really significant problems as they're both really openly Catholic and they've married into Protestant countries. Um, so, yeah, it's not it's not easy. Um, and their foreign origins can be really important in understanding both how these women were perceived by their contemporaries and when unpicking, as Joe says, their narratives as reconstructed in modern heritage sites. So as queen consorts, they each held significant power in their new lands and still had powerful connections back home. Um, and that's something um, that we can quite often forget and overlook, um, especially when you think about Henry Maria and Catherine of Braganza, who both um, either return to their native um, courts and either come back or don't come back. Um, so those connections are still really important to them. Um, but for, if any reason one of their contemporaries takes issue with how they exercise their power, um, it's very easy for them to blame the Queen's foreign and confessional identities that existed outside of the, like, air quotes, normal English or Scottish existence. So in terms of heritage sites, Anna is generally just not there um, across kind of England and Scotland. Um, and when she is, she's very much reduced uh, just to a kind of a nameless queen, a mother figure. Um, so in Stirling Castle, they don't mention her name at all. Um, it's just, oh, the queen has had a baby. Um, and all kind of the celebration is James's, all the success is James's. And she's removed from that conversation. So even though they do mention um, that there's Danish ambassadors and things at um, their son's baptism, um, it's not kind of expanded to talk about you know, how important Anna's transnational um, connections are and how they are there because of Anna, because of her kind of background and her royal connections. Um, there's kind of been some new, more recently updated interpretation, um, which does a better job. <laughs> so at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, she's immediately recognised that she comes from you know, the Renaissance court in Denmark and that she's really keen to replicate this in Scotland and that she shapes the flourishing court culture, which then gets transferred between Scotland to England um, in 1603 with James's um, succession. Um, and that's kind of the first time um, that you kind of really see that in heritage. A lot of the time she's just kind of ignored. Um, so for Henrietta Maria, her French origin and her Catholicism did become a significant point of tension during her life. Um, and through this, she receives extensive blame for the civil wars, both from like contemporary opposition and in traditional historiography up until the 20th century. So we're not talking very long ago um, that these kind of conversations are happening. Um, and the survival of the pamphlets that criticize her um, and that previous historiography really shapes how she's remembered and still reconstructed in heritage sites today. 
Um, so she's either completely ignored or it just turned into this horrible evil villain of the mid like 1600s um, because of the power and influence that she's perceived to have had. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it doesn't give you the full story as Ellie was saying. Um, it just assigns them to, to a box, to a, um, to a binary and doesn't kind of unpick all of these things that they were doing. So in Heritage, she's usually absent, um, but um, one of the great places where her and Anna are kind of present together is the Queen's House in Greenwich, um, because that's a residence that unfortunately Anna never got to enjoy, but was um, started construction for her. And then Henrietta Maria lived in afterwards um, and was a really important place for Henrietta Maria in terms of her art collecting. Um, so that's a great one. If you want to go have a like, nice positive um, experience of learning about these women, um, I'd highly recommend you go there. Um, but last but not least for Catherine, her Portuguese identity is treated quite differently um, to Anna and Henrietta Maria's identity um, because it often finds its way into weird little snippets um, which attempt to paint this really general picture of life in England in the 1660s to 1680s without really providing any further examination or critical reflection. So she's credited with popularizing tea drinking in England. Um, and this is something that every few years there'll be a news article about her like, oh, this forgotten queen, did you know? Without her, we wouldn't drink tea. Um, and it's perhaps even more emphasized because of the traditional historiography that paints her as insignificant in comparison to Charles's mistresses. Um, but what that then fails to kind of look at in greater detail um, is that empire and colonialism fundamentally linked um, tea drinking and Catherine um, as her dowry included Portuguese colonies. Um, and that was particularly attractive to Charles when he was making his choices because he needed money um, and saw the expansion of an empire um, as a way to achieve that. Um, so yeah, we've <laughs> gone, gone on a little um, rant there, but it's really interesting that there's often this desire to present history as a binary of good and bad or success and failure um, or an important person, an insignificant person. And this really reflects theories of othering um, where people are either placed in an in-group or an out-group. And this creates incomplete narratives, um, which in the uh, case of these consort queens that I look at, usually favour their English or Scottish Protestant counterparts um, and reduces the complexities of their lived experiences. So yeah. My queen's in a nutshell, as Joe would say. <laughs> I think it's it's so interesting, especially with Catherine looking at um, just this tea drinking. You talked about bringing tea to England and I not that anyone else will ever see this. But I literally <laughs> have my, whoops, as I drop it, my cleaned out mug of tea that I have just finished. <laughs> um, so kind of this, this facet of British identity is then the modern day is tied back to the past. Um, and this kind of idea that it's, it's made understandable in a sense through this modern lens, which I think is incredibly fascinating. That's definitely one of the things that has come out. The, the more I've researched over the PhD is seeing just how much we might not teach a lot of the 17th century in schools and things, but how connected it is to ideas of national identity um, that I'm very excited to write about. <laughs> um, but I hadn't expected to the extent when I began. Yeah, it's, it's even, you find it, um, I was explaining to some first year students the other day, why the American tax date is the date that it is, is because of the early modern world when the year started on March 25th. And then if you add those days 
to move into the Gregorian calendar when we shifted, that makes it tax day. So if you kind of do the math, that's why American tax day for American listeners is why it is. Um, So just all these little things that kind of, as you will hear from Ellie and I, not being born in Britain, things that we kind of take for granted and then realize, oh, actually, we have the early modern people to thank for this, which is is always fun to see those connections. And I think that's a really intriguing part and a fascinating part of what you're doing, Amy, is bringing this kind of narrative through to the present day and saying, you know, actually, how was this at the time and how were we looking at it? Now, I have to say, going to museums and heritage sites with Amy is always fun because if you get to an interpretation text first and you just wait and you go, look at this one, you just wait for her to go, why have they done this? It's always fun. And so talking about kind of our own backgrounds and what we're looking at, A question that listeners will soon come to realize as a theme in this series is looking at our own positionality. And so what I mean by that is looking at our own backgrounds, our own education, our own, you know, upbringings, our own interests, um, and, and looking at how that affects what we study and how we study it. And so a question that will come up through every episode and that I will pose to you both now, maybe we can start with Amy and and move to Ellie, is does your own position, uh, in this case, as white female scholars, affect how you study queenship and how you understand this idea of global queenship, of queenship around the world in everywhere and in, in cultures that might not recognize a queen as we would in the Western European world. Over to you, Amy. A big question. <laughs> the big, the big final question. Yes. So um I have been talking to my students for the last couple of weeks about positionality and really trying to get them to understand it. Um, because recognizing our own positionality is so important, and that goes for everyone. Doesn't matter whether you're in academia or not, and you're listening to this. Um, it's really important because we're all affected by this complex mix of our experiences that make us us, um, and this affects. Um, our daily lives and our scholarship in a huge variety of ways um, that are sometimes harder um, to reconcile with or harder to understand um, and other times very easy to see. Um, so as a white European woman who attended an all-girls school um, for kind of my teenage years, it would be a real lie for me to say that those experiences haven't influenced the historian I've become. Um, so obviously Ellie introduced me to queenship, but my interest in uncovering women's historical narratives um, was fundamentally linked to those earlier experiences that I'd had um, and those aspects of my positionality. So as a white female scholar, I've become increasingly aware of the aspects of history that I don't know so well or I've not engaged with in the past. So for me, continuing to research those areas and to seek out opportunities to listen and to learn from those of our backgrounds is really important, um, both personally and when thinking about a future career in heritage or academia. So in heritage, one of the things we can really do um, to kind of make a positive difference um, is use co or community curation, um, which is essentially where when creating an exhibition, you don't just have one person saying, I'm the expert, I know exactly what's going on. You reach out to um, people who um, would connect to whatever the theme the exhibition is um, and do working groups and things like that. And do can go from the very small to the very large in co-curation, um, but it 
allows museums and heritage sites to offer a fuller reconstruction of the past um, and one that speaks to um, community groups that have previously been excluded in those spaces. I think that's one of the really important things in heritage sites um, because so often museums are seen as kind of a legitimate, again, air quotes, um, place to gain knowledge from. And if we're only presenting the white upper class male perspective in those spaces, um, then we're missing out a huge percentage of the rest of the population. Um, so obviously there is a lot of work um, to be done to dismantle systemic racism and bias in the workplace. Um, and as scholars who have experienced white privilege, it's really important that we do everything in our power, our power um, to support ethnically diverse communities and increase diversity in the field. Um, and I think Ellie's probably gonna be able to speak to that really well. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. I mean, obviously, I agree with you, Amy. I mean, obviously, being a woman, obviously, studying women's history, we have a kind of vested interest in it. Uh, you know, obviously, we're, you know, being interested in kind of women in power is almost kind of natural for us as, as, as a woman, as a female scholar. Although that said, there are some amazing uh, male scholars who are working on queenship and some amazing female scholars working on kingship as well. So it needn't necessarily be kind of gender dependent, but it does obviously, you know, uh, you know, perhaps as part of our, uh, perspective that we're almost rooting for the women. We're try we, we have a vested interest in trying to bring them out of the woodwork. Um, but in terms of the kind of global aspect, one of the things that's really kind of blown my mind as I've increasingly begun to look at queenship in a global context over the course of my career is that most of the work that's been done on queenship and on monarchy has been done in a pre-modern European context. And the problem with that is, even though that, that that research is amazing and we've done some wonderful things, we've really kind of unpicked a lot of how kind of monarchy functions and queenship functions, we've looked at it in a very particular construct. And that is in kind of Christian monogamous Europe. But when you blow out the doors and you look across, you look at queenship and monarchy across kind of time and space and globally, you realize that the European case that we've been studying so intently is the anomaly. We are the weirdos. <laughs> like that is not how monarchy functions in most times, places, and cultures. It's in a polygamous framework. And that changes everything in, in certain ways. And there are some things that are incredibly constant across space and time. And one thing that I found really exciting looking across different cultures is how much commonality there was on the expectations of queens and royal women that had a lot to do with gender ideals, which again were um, surprisingly similar across cultures, religions, and spaces and places and times. But the polygamous kind of scenario is one thing that really kind of is a game changer. And again, it just our understanding of queenship and how it works, thinking about a queen, again, influenced by the English word quen, which means the wife of the king, that we already have a presumption that a queen is a consort. And then we have a presumption that she is the only consort. And that is not how it works. So, you know, I think we really need to um, shake things up a bit and not make assumptions and assumptions that because we know how monarchy works in an environment that we're familiar with, that is how it works for everybody. And again, it's been really, really exciting to look at it in this different way. And I have become really passionate about all the wonderful royal women, European, but particularly globally, who are not getting attention, who are just as fascinating as the women we know so well, the Catherine the Greats, the Elizabeths the First, and the Eleanors of Aquitaines, 
that they need that attention, that Sondok of Silla needs that attention, that Indinja of Angola needs that attention, you know, that Nur Jahan of the Mughal Empire needs that attention. So again, you know, it just made me incredibly passionate that there are so many queens and royal women whose stories need to be told and um, need to be given that kind of equal footing of their European counterparts. Preach. <laughs> Absolutely. There's this kind of this, this assumption that the the way kind of any culture does it in that culture is seen as normal. And so in a Western European perspective, having multiple queens simultaneously is complicated and messy. And we think kind of Henry VIII, when Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn are still alive, it's messy for him. But then in different parts of the world, that's completely normal. You know, why would you only have two? Um, and so just this idea of, well, what's normal? What makes it normal um, is is fascinating. And just the, the differences that there is female power everywhere in the world, but the way that it is exercised changes and the way that it's perceived and kind of the, the physical, tangible aspects are different. I think that's something I'm certainly looking forward to as we go through the rest of this series, as getting to hear kind of more about some Western European adjacent questions of queenship, looking at kind of the former British Empire, looking at the Commonwealth, but also looking at Indian queenship, looking at empresses in Asia, looking at queenship in Asia and looking at these non-white Western European examples. So thank you both very much for coming on. Um, I'm so pleased to have you both. I'm so happy you could take some time out of your very busy, very academic days uh, to come and have a chat with me. So next up, we will be hearing more about the former British colonies. We'll be looking at queenship especially in the context of Queen Victoria in North America, as well as in some of the other former colonies of Britain in the Victorian era. Um, so again, thank you to both of my wonderful guests, Dr. Ellie Woodacre and Amy Saunders. Uh, thank you both for joining me. And I look forward to having all of our listeners join us again for the next episode in our Queenship series for Tudor's Dynasties podcast series. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.